morning, family. We'll try that again. Good morning, family. All right, that's much better. All right, Uh, grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have one, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read together verses 11 through 22. And uh, we're going to be focusing this morning on verse uh, 19. And so um, if you get there, we're going to read together, read out loud uh, the text this morning. And when we get to the end, to the end of verse 22, I'm going to say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to give thanks to God this morning. Are you ready? All right. Hike. Let's begin. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to be looking specifically at verse number 19 this morning. And so I want you to look there again quickly. It says, So then, you are no longer, what? Strangers, or what? Aliens. But you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here we see Paul once again speaking to identity. And over and over and over again, through this letter to the Ephesians, that's exactly what Paul is going to be speaking to. He's going to be talking to them about their identity specifically in Christ. And he has been systematically showing us how that our identity apart from Christ is altogether other and different than it is in Christ. 
And I want you to see this morning the connection in verse 19 with verse 12, the same kind of connection that we had between verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. Remember when we got to the but God in verse 4, and everything that came out of what God was doing in Christ was a direct counter to what Paul had described as our identity before Christ, right? So just look back at that again so that we can see what Paul's doing here. Remember in verse 1 and 2, he says, Apart from Christ, you were what? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, going as far in verse number 3 to say that we were by nature children of wrath. And so what did we see there? We saw that apart from Christ, we had an identity and a destination. And what was that? We were, we were dead, okay? Not just, not just mostly dead. We were really and truly dead in our trespasses and sins. And not only dead, but in that dead state, we were also then bound. Bound by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by nature, destined children of wrath. And so that was our identity, and that was our course before Christ. And verse 4 comes in, and what does Paul say? He says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, God, when we were dead, did what? Made us alive. See the correlation. He showed us that we were dead, but God in Christ has what? Made us alive. It's a counter. Then he says, not only that, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, but then what? Raised us up. And so not only have we been made alive, right? Regeneration has come. Life has come into this dead and rotting corpse. But then those chains that held us bound and captive have been loosed and we have been raised up. And so again, there's this counter to the bound in verse number 2. And then again, he says what? He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness with him in doing what? In verse 6, he says, he has seated us with him in heavenly places. So while we had by nature a destination of wrath, God has in Christ made us alive, freed us and raised us up and has secured us in him such that we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places which should blow our minds because we're actually sitting right here right now. So there's this spiritual reality that's happening in the present natural world that we live in where God in Christ, for those who believe, remember Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he's saying this is who you were but this is who you are now because of Christ, right? But then we get into this next section that we've been dealing with and he shows them a greater depth of redemption that God in Christ has done for them because not only has this happened for them like it happened for others, but they are also different from the Jews whom the gospel first came to. And why? Because in their natural state as Gentiles, they were again altogether different and other than this set-apart people that God had chosen and elected for himself in Israel. And now he's showing how that God in Christ is grafting 
believers from both the house of Israel and the house of the Gentiles in together. And that's what we've been dealing with. And so we look again and we see that the key to understanding verse 19 is this counter thing that's happening with verse number 12. So look at verse 12 again. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And what were you? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we have the reality of the Gentiles before Christ, the Ephesians before Christ, and we have to come to this text this morning and raise our hand and say, yeah, and that's, that's me too, right? And so in that, what do we see? Beyond being dead and bound and by nature children of wrath, as Gentiles, not only was that the case, but also in that state, we were completely cut off from Christ, strangers to the covenants and promise. We had no clue as a people called the Gentiles that God was getting ready to break into humanity and send a Redeemer. We, that was completely lost on us. But for a few handful of people throughout redemptive history, those who were Gentiles, that was nowhere on the radar. And because of that, what was the result? Because of that, we are in this state of being cut off from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, so we're not a part of the people of God, strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning what? That we have no hope and we are without God in the world. And the word that Paul actually uses is the word that we get the word atheist for in that without God in the world. Because even though the Gentile peoples around the world were worshiping gods made with human hands, we would recognize rightly that none of them were in fact gods. In fact, Paul elsewhere will say that these are actually demons that they were worshiping and serving as gods. And so here we see this key in 19, this counter to what Paul is showing us in verse number 12. And what I want you to see this morning is that this speaks to identity. How do we get to identity? Well, the way we get to identity is we have to answer a series of questions. We have to answer the question of, who God is, and then the question of what God has done, and then those two answers about who God is and what He has done informs the third answer to the third question that we need to have, and that is, what does that mean about who I am? Right? That's how we get to identity, is we get to identity by answering who God is and what he's done and what that means about who we are. That, that informs identity for us. And why is that so important? Well, it's the same, the reason that's important is the reason that Paul has gone to great pains to unpack for us in the last two chapters all that God has done because in the following verses and chapters leading from where we are right now, Paul is about to tell us what we should then do, right? We're about to get to all of the therefores of the gospel in Ephesians. 
And what is so vitally important is that we understand the therefores in light of the becauses of the gospel. And the becauses of the gospel answer those first two questions. Who God is and what he's done and what that means about who we are. And that's how we get to the therefore, right? So we would say it this way. Because of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and what that means about who we are in him, identity, therefore we ought to fill in the blank. Now this is what happens so often in evangelical circles today. Um, especially in America, because we are a checklist people, right? We are a checklist people, and we just, just tell me what to do, right? I mean, just, would you please just tell me what to do? And what happens so often is we jump into the New Testament, and we go to Paul's letters, and Paul does this, if you don't know this, his letters are formulated this way. It's because, therefore. And we jump over the because, we jump right into the therefore, and let me tell you what we do for ourselves. We erect for ourselves a new system of law. And we put ourselves under law rather than resting in the finished work of the cross and the grace which Christ purchased for us. Now, are the therefores important? Yes, that's why they're there. But we need to understand where the motivation for those things come from, and they have to come from a gospel motivation. And so we need what Paul is doing for us here so that we can understand that everything that he is going to call us to do is supposed to come out of who we are in Christ because of what God has done for us in Christ because of who God is. Okay? Now, for those of you who care, right, that's theology, Christology, ecclesiology, missiology, right? Who God is, when we answer that question, that's what we call theology proper. That's what the question of theology is answering, who God is. And we say, what has God done? Well, God acts in a certain way. And how does God act? He always acts in the Son. Remember, chapter 1, everything is coming to us from the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And so, what is God doing? He's acting through His Son, His representative to us. And so, that's Christology. So, our theology then comes and informs our Christology. And it's why we want to be so committed to being Christocentric here at Redemption Hill because we have no redemption without the Jesus who died for us on that hill, right? And that theology, which informs a Christology, then informs our ecclesiology, which is our understanding of who we are as the people of God, the church. And once we figure that out, that moves us into missiology, into mission, into what we then should do. Okay? So now let's look here. We see in verse 19 that something has happened, something is changing. And where is that coming from? It's coming from the but now in verse 13. It says, but now in Christ... We have been united with Christ, right? So something is happening in this 
in Christ Jesus in verse 13, where those who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the first thing that I want you to see is that none of this is possible. None of what we're about to read in verse 19 is possible without being united to Christ. And here's the deal. You can come through those doors and you can sit in these chairs every single week. You can stand up and you can sing these songs and clap your hands and even raise your hands. You can go to a Bible study, a missional community. You can hang out with other Christians and none of that stuff makes you God's kid. None of that makes you the church. None of that makes you a Christian. You can only be a Christian by faith being united to Christ. And so we have to recognize that within the church, and, and I believe Blake's going to get into this in the next couple of weeks as we're kind of in this part of the Nicene Creed right now talking about the church, but we have to recognize that there is both a visible and an invisible component of the church at all times. And the invisible component is only visible to God. And for us, we only see who comes through the door. And, and this, is, this is our commitment. That as long as you by your mouth are confessing that Jesus is Lord, we, we accept you and, and embrace you as a brother or a sister in Christ. Until such time that by your life you prove otherwise. And because we love you, we're going to come to you and tell you, listen. By your mouth you're saying one thing, but your life is saying another. And you need to understand that you will not see heaven just by hanging out with us. You need Christ. You need Christ. And so we must understand that without verse 13, verse 12 remains our reality. No matter how often you come through the doors, no matter how often you sit in those chairs, until by faith you receive Christ and he brings you near by his blood, verse 12 remains your identity. Separated from Christ, alienated from the promises, without hope and without God in the world. But if verse 13 is your reality, then everything that verse 19 says is now your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Amen? So what's happening? When we are united in Christ, something happens. And, and here's what Paul says in verse 15. If you'll look there as we've just gone through it over the last couple of weeks, that he is creating in himself what? One new man in place of the two. And so something's happening as you are united in Christ. Your past identity is being stripped away. That doesn't mean that you're not still you. You're still you. But the things that held you back and kept you from God are being stripped away. And in his flesh... Christ is creating this new man. And where before there were two, Jew and Gentile, there is now only one, 
And that is Christian in Christ, right? That is the identity that matters. And, and, and you've got to understand that as these Jews who had been the chosen people of God for generation upon generation upon generation, this is what Paul is saying to them. That national identity needs to fall away. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that asks a question, can an Ethiopian change his skin? That's like asking that to happen. That's how deeply tied to their national identity the Jewish people were. And Paul's saying, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, in Christ. One new man in place of the two. And so the first thing I want you to see is that being united in Christ is what God does in Christ as he creates a new man. He creates a new man. So who is God? He is creator. And what has he done for us in Christ? He has created a new man. He, had, he has created us a new man. And so what does that mean for us? What, what is the result of that? What then should we do? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Turn back to the left just several pages. This should be a fairly familiar verse to you. But it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, isn't that what we're going for here? Is that what we want? In Christ? Yes. If anyone is in Christ, what does it say? He is a new creation. One new man in place of the two. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. What then should we do? We should begin to allow those old things to pass away. Right? Now, does that take some time sometimes? Yeah. Jesus comes, raised Lazarus from the dead. He comes walking out. He's not, he's not wearing, you know, a James Bond suit. He's wrapped in grave clothes, right? The residual hanging on of this death that he experienced attached to his body. And what does Jesus say? Take him home and help him get his grave clothes off, right? And so there is this time, but that's something that we have to engage in. Lazarus had to go and actually submit to the help that he needed of getting those grave clothes unraveled off of him, and we need to do the same thing. There's a way of our old life that used to be true, and it's time for some of those things to begin to come off and peel off and unravel. And we may need help with that. Praise God, it doesn't stop with just a new man. Let's keep going. 
Jesus says in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And he asks his disciples in John 15 to abide in him even as he abides in the Father. And we need to understand that if we are going to see the promises of God in our life, that it is only going to come through Christ, us being placed in him and being created in him as a new man. When we are united by faith into Christ, we are no longer, what does it say in verse 19? No longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer strangers to the promise and the covenants. Why? Because in Christ, you with me? In Christ, we have received Christ who is the fulfillment of both the covenants and the promises that Israel had in shadows, right? The covenants and the promises that Israel had that we were strangers and aliens to were shadows of the reality that was to come in Christ. And what's happened when God in Christ has grafted us into Christ is that we have now received in full, in substance, what Israel only had in shadows. Do you see? We may have not had the covenants and promises for generation upon generation upon generation, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because we've received Christ. We've received the one the covenants and the promises were about. The thing that they had in shadows, praise God, we have in substance because we have Christ himself. We've received in substance and whole Christ himself. So look at this next part. It says, so that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but what does it say? You are fellow citizens, fellow citizens, that you are fellow citizens. So before we were cut off from Christ, but is that our reality anymore? No, God in Christ has, has brought us in. He's brought us near by the blood of Christ. He's created in his flesh a new man. And so we have Christ, but not only are we a new man, but now what is this saying to us? It's saying to us that we actually have a new nation, that, that God is forming a new people, His own people for His own glory, for His own pleasure. God is forming them together. And in Christ, we not only have a new man, we've not only been created a new man, but now we've been given a new national identity. A new nation is brought together because we're no longer alienated from the people of God, from Israel, but in Christ we've become a part of the people of God. And we've been called fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. That's a big deal. To be transferred from one national identity into another like that. Look at Romans 9.25. Paul writing in Romans 9, quoting the prophet 
Hosea speaks God's words about what he is doing. And in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is what God is doing in Christ. So what, who is God? God is the God who chooses. And what has God done in Christ? He has chosen for himself a people. And what does that mean about who we are in Christ? It means that we are fellow citizens in that people that God has chosen. And so what does that mean about who we are and what we should do? It means that we should live as citizens of that kingdom. What does it mean? It means that there should be a transference of who you call your people. Who are your people? Who is it that you identify with more than anyone else in this world? And you want to talk about denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Jesus? This is what the Word of God is asking you to do. To let your identity with those people slip away so that you might identify in Christ. Such that there could be such an exchange that like Jesus on the cross with John saying, Man, here is your mother, and mother, here is your son, that we could look at each other and say, this is my people. What do you care more about being in this world than anything else? And the reality is, is that we should care more about being Christ's and being in Him than any other identity that we could have. You want to get real for a minute? That means that you should care more about being in Christ than being white or being black or being any other race or ethnic identity. That when we look at each other, we should see fellow citizens of one new nation that God is forming in Christ Jesus. Where there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We live in a culture that wants to talk about racial unity and bringing reconciliation to race. I want to see that. But there is only one place that that can happen. And that is in Christ himself. 
where the dividing walls of hostility between us are broken down because God is forming in him one new man in place of the two, a new creation who is now part of a new nation. And it goes deeper than that. And how is this happening? It's happening by faith. Flip just a couple pages over in Romans to chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul asking the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now just, if you have your finger there, flip back to Ephesians 2. Remember verse 11, what did it say? Therefore remember at that one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the what? The uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision, and I believe a little bit of a a jab here tongue-in-cheek, which is made in the flesh by hands, right? Paul just kind of throwing that in there just to kind of make sure they understand. This is, you're, you're putting all of your confidence and your assurance in something that people have done rather in something that God has done, right? But here in verse 9 of chapter 4 of Romans, he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So he's answering the question, is this for the Gentiles as well? And we, he says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. What was counted to Abraham as righteousness, church? Faith. How then was it counted to him, Paul asks, was it before or after he had been circumcised? Does anyone remember the answer? No cheating. It was before. How good and how gracious is our God that he would not allow Abraham to obey until he would not wait for Abraham to obey after he was circumcised, but made sure that Abraham obeyed before he was circumcised. How good is our God to do that? Why do I say that? Because if God had allowed that Abraham would have obeyed after he was circumcised, then we'd be sitting here puzzling and scratching our head and saying, well, I don't know. Maybe it is because of works. Because, you know, he got circumcised before he obeyed. Before it was counted to him as righteous, we'd be sitting here puzzling. Praise God, we don't have to puzzle. We can look at the account in Genesis. We can come here in Romans and we can say, praise God. Righteousness was counted to Abraham before circumcision. It was not after, but before he was circumcised, verse 10. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why does this matter? The purpose, you, lo- you like that? There's like this rhetorical question that we have, so what? And then Paul tells us, the purpose was to make him, make Abraham, the father of all who, what? Believe. What was the promise to Abraham? That he would be the father of what? Many nations. Not one nation. Many Nations. And how many children of promise did Abraham have in the natural? One. I 
I want to say it so bad, but I don't. Like that flies in the face of every prosperity gospel teaching ever, right? Like stick that in your prosperity gospel pipe and smoke it. Like, you know, God's promise, the father of many nations. How many kids won in the promise? One in sin. It wasn't about Israel. It was about the church. Because the true Israel is the church. And the church is the true Israel. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who would believe Listen, without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. How is righteousness counted to us? It's not by circumcision. It's not by good works. It's not by being sanctified. No, our sanctification is part and parcel with our justification in Christ. We are counted righteous by faith. And all other righteousness that we could add up and count up if we could, we would have to count in the dung heap pile along with Paul and in the dirty rags pile along with Isaiah. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Here's the deal. As God has created this new man, and, and because in this all who are in Christ are a new creation, the old is passing away, as those things begin to slip away, and we step into what it means to be a part of this new nation, this people that God is forming, we have a governing constitution. And there is a way in which we are called to walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so what then should we do as a part of this new nation? We should journey, as Peter says, as Aliens and sojourners in this land. That we should walk as a people who hold a citizenship in another place. Such that our patriotism could not outshine our love for Christ our dependence upon Christ, our identification with Christ. Who are your people? Church, behold your people. But this is not all. He's created a new man. And he's created a new nation. But what else does he say here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and what? Members 
of the household of God. Not only has he created a new man, not only is a new people being formed, but God in Christ has done what? He has, well, what has he done? Who is he? How do we know what God has done? We look at who he is because that's how God operates. He doesn't do to become, he is and so he does. And that's what he's calling us into. So who is God? God is Father. And what has God done in Christ? He has adopted. He's adopted a family. What does that mean about who we are? It means that our core identity church, the one that we should look at daily, is that in Christ we have been dearly adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Because in Christ He's made us a new man. He's given us citizenship into His kingdom. But He has also joined us together with a family. A family formed by the gospel or a gospel formed family. We are members of the household of God. A people called out of the world and out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. Jesus formed this family by His very word in Matthew 16 verse 18. When He says, I will build my church. It's the first time we get introduced to the church in all of Scripture is when Jesus speaks it into existence in Matthew 16, 18. And He says, I will build my church. And what does church mean? It means ecclesia. It's this group of called out people. There were people who were in the world and they were dead in their trespasses and sins bound by the world, the flesh and the devil. And they were not only there, but they were by nature just destined for wrath, cut off from the promises and the covenants of Israel, alienates, alienated from Christ himself without hope and without God in the world. And Jesus calls us out of that place of darkness. He breathes life into us and raises us and breaks the bond by his anointing. For it is by the anointing that every bond is broken. And in that place, he seats us with him in the heavenly places such that our condition as being justified and sanctified and perfected in him is so secure, so utterly secure, such that it is unshakable because he himself is unshakable for he is the risen king seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning such that He will be so until He makes every enemy His footstool, the last being death. Praise God. And He's saying, I will build my church. Behold, church, your people, the people that God is building, a people of his own choosing and for his own pleasure, for his own glory. And this is what we need to understand as we move into the next couple of verses in the coming week or so. 
What does he say? He says that he's built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Over the last couple of years, I've spent a great deal of time uh, in, in another vocation of mine, selling water softeners. If anyone needs one, give me a call. Um, <laughs> and it's amazing to me as I drive through these different subdivisions and new home developments and watching these homes being built from, from dirt to completion, right? And they come in and they level everything out. They lay the foundation. And inevitably these trucks come and they drop off just huge pallet loads of bricks, right? And there's almost nothing more sad to me than driving through these subdivisions and new home developments and seeing these completed homes. And then there's always like this one pallet left over of just like loose bricks that are just kind of like toppled over like someone built a sandcastle and came and just crushed it. It's just like laying over and there's just like random bricks laying around all over the place. And it's sad to me because in a sense, each one of those bricks came to that place with the purpose, the intention of being built into that structure. But instead they're altogether separate and left out and not joined together into that structure. And there are so many people, so many believers, and I, and I believe that this is one of the things that, that God used to birth Redemption Hill in my heart in the very beginning. And that is that we have been taught a Christianity that is just me and Jesus by myself. We've been taught that Jesus saved us so that we can be saved. Rather than understanding that it was our salvation that enabled God to adopt us. That we weren't saved for freedom alone. But we were saved for family. That we were saved so that we could be adopted into a family so that we wouldn't be this brick left out by itself that hasn't been joined together with the whole structure built on the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. And how many people do we know? Friends and family members, neighbors, who claim Christ, but exist as a brick altogether separate from the structure that Christ himself said that he was building. Where life and purpose and identity come from is being placed into that structure. And maybe there's even some of you here this morning that though you come and you sit here, you feel like you're altogether separate. You need to know this morning that God 
had a purpose in making you a new man and giving you a citizenship in a new kingdom. And it was so that he could join you together with this structure so that you can be built up on Christ Jesus. You were not saved for freedom alone. You were not redeemed for freedom alone. You were redeemed for family. For in every way, shape, and form, the horizontal ramifications of sin have been dealt with by Jesus in the cross. Meaning that we can have unity with one another in Christ Jesus. Therefore, or as verse 19 says, so then we can be one. We can be one and have at one with each other as we exist in the at one or the atonement that Christ has purchased for us. This is exactly what Jesus asked of the Father for us in John 17. And we'll close by kind of looking here quickly. In John 17, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer. And listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 13. This is Jesus praying, speaking to the Father. He says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that they, meaning his disciples, may have joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Listen to this, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
That was Jesus' prayer for us. And let me tell you, the Father has given all into the Son's hand. This is Jesus' prayer, that we would be one, not separate, not divided, not living a rugged individualistic identity of American culture, but embracing a countercultural identity of family and community, of citizenship as new creations, a new man that God in Christ has formed in himself. What this does for us as a church right now is it gives us an opportunity to enter into space to begin to talk about the doctrine of the church. For this is what we were redeemed for. The church refers to all the people who belong to the Lord, those who've been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And what that means is that we need to understand that unity and diversity is greater than uniformity. That we are united under true doctrine, united in Christ, though we are diverse in our tastes and affinities and human cultures. But God in Christ is doing exactly what Jesus asked him to do. He is sanctifying us in his truth. And so we'll begin to talk about the purpose of the church, the importance of the church, the life of the church, the work of the church, and the message of the church as we begin to figure out exactly who it is that God has called us to be in Christ Jesus. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. And now we simply pray that it would do its intended work. That it would reach deep into our souls. That it would divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. That God, you would do a surgical work on us. Lord, I'm reminded of just the reality that I have no power to strip away my own grave clothes. It is only you, by your Holy Spirit, who can begin to peel away the layers of residual sin that cling to my life. And so, God, I pray and I ask you to do that work now in us. Attitudes and hostilities that have crept up in our hearts that have caused us to more closely identify with people outside the people of God. Our work or our race or our hoods. <laughs> Lord, all of those things are so much less so much less fulfilling than being found in you. 
that is truly our desire. That at the end of our days, the last and only thing that could be said is that we may be found in you. Let it be, Lord. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we give our amen.